Welcome to the SCORE Life and Health Innovation Podcast, where we dive right into how innovation is driving change around the world in our life and health ecosystem. I've been there and I'm sure you've been there too. You're sick and you go to your physician and you get a prescription for a medication to make you feel better. You need to take the medication one, two or three times a day before your meals for one week. Sounds very simple. But what if you forget? Turns out I'm not the only one who forgets. Around 75% of Americans have trouble taking their medication as directed according to the New England Healthcare Institute. Today, we're talking to Matt Loper, co-founder and CEO of Wealth, an American startup based in Los Angeles, which is using behavioral economics to inspire positive behavior change for patients with chronic health conditions. In their app, Wealth uses financial incentives to overcome present bias and motivate patients to adhere to their daily care plans and improve their health. What is the impact exactly on the insurance industry? Wealth is saving health plans and providers billions on avoidable costs in high-risk populations, including those in Medicare and Medicaid. I'm Matt Loper. I am CEO and co-founder of Wealth, and we're based here in Los Angeles, California. Matt, can you tell us about Wealth? So how did Wealth start and what are you doing? Right. So our job as a company is to help patient populations that are very sick, that have a lot of barriers standing in the way of, of them reaching good out health outcomes, to reach these better outcomes through helping motivate them to change their habits. So the way we got started is I was an investor in the healthcare space. A lot of industry was, was adopting and, and talking about back when I started the company was this adoption of value-based care, right? And what that means is the payers of healthcare, the health insurers, and the providers of healthcare, the, the doctors, the hospitals, the, the big health systems were for the first time in, in the U.S. aligning their incentives through financial payment structures. So for the first time, the insurers were giving money to the doctors and providers that produce better health outcomes. But we're missing out a crucial stakeholder here, right? The payers and providers are important, but the most important stakeholder is the patient themselves, right? They are the ones that spend 99% of their time outside of care settings. They are the ones that make the daily decisions that determine the long-term outcomes. And they have no incentive to improve financially. Now they have a, uh, of course, a health incentive to improve their behaviors and therefore reach better outcomes. But the problem is, is that human psychology is not meant to think about the long-term outcomes that are rationally, you know, we, the, the daily steps that rationally give us long-term outcomes. We can't think about, we can't bridge that gap versus the, t- the thing we do today, right? Like taking your medications or ch- changing the way you eat or exercise or, you know, managing this disease state by tracking the metrics. We can't think about this thing that we're doing today, this task that we have to do every day that's menial and gives us no immediate gratification and tie it to the long-term health benefit that we know it's rationally going to produce for us, right? So there's this whole study of human behavior called behavioral economics. And when you look at healthcare problems with this behavior economic lens, you start to realize that the problem is that humans tend to know what they're supposed to do, right? They, it's not a lack of information or and in many cases, they intend to and want to do the right thing, but they don't end up doing it, right? Because we are, as humans, are not perfectly rational beings. We don't make these choices that are in our best interest at all times. Because before you mentioned um, the fact that, you know, it, it's changing their behavior can have a financial impact. But of course, it's also a short term impact on deciding to go to the gym or not, or to take your medication or not, or to follow up with your treatment or not. So how is this related? Yeah, so... Um, all of those things, right? We know those are 
quote unquote good for us, right? We know what we should do, especially these patients that have, you know, multiple chronic conditions. Let's say they have diabetes and, and hypertension, right? So that that patient, he or she knows rationally what they should do, right? They should eat healthy meals. They should take these medications every day and they should track these metrics, right? They should see how their blood sugars and blood pressures are progressing over time. They know that's good for them. But if you think about that patient journey, right? And I'm that patient, let's say I wake up in the morning. I've never, you know, if I'm a, a hypersensitive or diabetic, I've never woken up in the morning and said, oh, my, my blood pressure feels really bad today, right? So I need to do these things to alleviate it. Or my blood pressure feels really good, right? It, I know that this problem exists, but it's what we like to call silent suffering, right? It's something that is not an immediate need of, you know, hey, I need to solve this thing. And my life might be very complex, right? I might have um, people that depend on me and a job and children and whatnot. So when I think about, okay, I know I'm supposed to take this medication because it's going to help me in the long term. The problem is when I take it right now, I feel no different right now, right? Versus something that's really bad for my, my high blood pressure, or my diabetes, like eating a whole pizza tastes really good right now. My psychology as a human was made to think about that immediate and tangible benefit, not the long-term benefit, right? So there is no financial incentive or immediate benefit for me to do the right thing. So at Wealth, what we try to do is we try to create those financial incentives. Basically, we work on behalf of the health systems and, and health insurers that have the risk on the outcome and help that patient do the right thing to prevent that heart attack or stroke um, dialysis uh, that is going to happen down the road by giving them immediate benefit today. Yeah, absolutely. So let's say I have diabetes and I and I have high blood pressure. What are my incentives if I'm, if I'm using Wealth? What we do, would do is we would reach out to you. And we would say, hey, um, so it seems like you have these conditions. We really want to help you form these habits to make sure that you are reaching these best outcomes. And we're preventing these very bad things from happening, like this heart attack or stroke in the future that might happen. So we're going to give you $30 a day or $30 a month, sorry, right now just to download this app, right? That's this concept called the endowment effect. It's a concept that Richard Thaler from University of Chicago got the Nobel Prize in 2017 for. It is the same concept that here in the U.S., if you if you fly on American Airlines, for example, they'll say, hey, here's 60,000 miles just to sign up for a credit card. By giving that credit up front, you are very motivated to enroll in the offer. This is just to download the app. You get $30 directly. Exactly. In your, in your app, it's going to show a balance of $30 that day. But every day over the course of the month, we're going to tell you, okay, you have to do these behaviors, right, for these, these two conditions. You have to take these medications in the morning and at nighttime. So we ask the patient, what time do you want to be reminded to take these medications? Okay, uh, 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. You also have to check your glucometer, say, twice a day after you eat um, lunch and dinner. Uh, and then you also have to check your blood pressure once a week as prescribed by your doctor, right? So what we do is we work with you to understand this care plan that your doctor has established for you. We set up these daily reminders to do all of these behaviors. And we say, if you don't finish those four daily behaviors, right, the two medication times and the two glucometer times, you're going to lose two of those $30 today, right? So if you don't do the behavior, you're going to lose out on two of those $30 and your balance will now be $28, right? So you get endowed the, the $30 up front. If you don't do the behavior, you lose out on some of those, those $30. But at the end of the month, let's say I only missed one day this month, $28 goes onto my wealth rewards card and I'm able to spend that. Um, for groceries or, or whatever I need to use that card for. So two questions, Matt. First one, how do you make sure that people do not lie? Because like you said before, and, and I'm a bit familiar actually with behavioral economics, people also, they are not rational. We're not rational beings. And we're not always acting on our best interest. What we assume mm -hmm. is our best interest is sometimes is to stay in bed instead of going to the gym or to mm -hmm. eat an ice cream instead of 
just having a little a piece of fruit. So how do you make sure that people are not lying on the platform? So we find that the vast majority of these patients actually intend to and want to do the right thing, right? There's this concept from behavioral economics called the intent behavior gap. So you gave perfect examples, right? This weekend, I intend to go for a run and I intend to eat salad and be really healthy. But then the weekend rolls around and oh, I'm very tired. I've had a long, stressful day, uh, week at work. This happens to every single human on earth, right? We always intend to and want to do the right thing because you notice this a lot of times when you, you do that behavior, when you do the wrong behaviors, you feel very guilty afterwards. You're like, oh man, not again. This weekend, you know, I watched six hours of Netflix and, and just sat on the couch. So we want to do the right thing, right? So what we're trying to do is we're trying to help these patients bridge intent behavior gap, right? By and large, the vast majority of these patients want to and intend to do the right thing every day. They want to take those medications as prescribed. They want to track these, these glucometer readings. They want to do what is in their own best interest. There's just that gap between the intent and behavior. So what we try to do is we try to motivate them in the moment to bridge that gap, help them bridge that gap, right? So for example, for those pills, let's say they have four different pills they're supposed to take both morning and night. They take all four pills in their hand. They snap the photo. We give this immediate and salient benefit. Great job. Completed all four of your care plan behaviors today. You've kept the $2, right? So that's another concept from behavioral economics. Motivate the behavior to happen. Let it happen as simply and easily as possible. So remove as many barriers from doing the behavior. So for example, take that glucometer reading, just snap a photo of it, right? Take that, take those four medications in the hand, just snap the photo. And then give this immediate and salient reward as the behavior happens. So that's really crucial to start to form this habit. What we've seen is, yes, theoretically, these patients could put all four pills in their hand twice a day. I guess they could try to trick the glucometer by pulling up an old reading, for example, uh, and take the photo of it every day. But to go through that effort, they're 99% of the time going to actually follow through with the behavior, right? Because again, you might as well do it, right? Exactly. So they, they will take those pills. They will check the glucometers. And we've seen this through actually the health outcomes we produce, right? So if patients were spending the time and effort to take those pills out every day, snap the photo and then not take them, we wouldn't be seeing the healthcare outcomes improving in these populations that we've seen like drastic improvements to hospitalizations and, and readmissions or population health metrics like, you know, diabetes, uh, HbA1Cs for, for diabetics improving. So th there's these hard metrics that we've, we've measured that prove that, yes, when we get the, the intent and behavior to meet, usually the behavior gets done. Because that was exactly my next question. So how do you measure the impact of patients who actually follow, they understand the nudges, they manage to overcome their laziness or uh, their avoidance and actually go through? That's a key component of our program, right, is we want to fit into this whole value-based care ecosystem I talked to at the start, right? We want to be a value-based company ourselves. We align our incentives with those of everyone, the payer, the provider, the, the, the patient, those are the most important, but everyone else who also has um, an incentive in the system, right? The pharma companies manufacturing and selling these drugs, right? The device manufacturers manufacturing these devices like the glucometers or the blood pressure cuffs, or, uh, you know, we've even worked with device manufacturers that are therapeutic devices like uh, CPAP adherence for sleep apnea, right? So the nice thing about our model is when we win, everyone wins, right? Patient reaches better outcomes, the healthcare costs are lower, and everyone is happy in this whole supply chain of healthcare. So it's a really interesting thing is we want to put RFPs at risk for outcomes because we want to make sure that we're only making money when the patient population is improving and we are saving money for the customers, right? So in many of the large, we've done randomly controlled trials, looked at um, two different groups at the time of discharge after a heart attack, and uh, there was a control group and there was a wealth group. The control group was it was at University of Pennsylvania, which is you know one of the best hospitals in the U.S. Already is number sixteen in, in terms of cardiology care in U.S. News and World Report. So like one of the best in class hospitals, right? So the control group was coming from this best in class care. These patients were compared against our wealth group that were you know randomization happened up front. 
And we produced a 45% reduction to the readmissions that happened in the 90 days after that first heart attack in our group versus the control group, right? So we started with these very scientific studies and pilots. Mm -hmm. Now we're doing this at scale for these large insurers, right? And recently, um, I can't say the name, but we've been working with a very large national um, health insurer here in the U.S. We helped them with a patient population in Arizona where we enrolled. Um, they gave us about 20,000 members possible um, to enroll. We were able to enroll a large portion of those members very quickly. We now have a quarter of claims data coming through. So we've actually reviewed 5 million rows of claims data and looked at our tangible impact on those patients we were able to get to enroll in well versus um, those patients that, that were not offered the program or did not enroll. And we've seen a drastic improvement at scale in these thousands and tens of thousands of patients, actually, in terms of their actual healthcare outcomes. So our through the first quarter of working together, our uh, inpatient hospital days went down 71%. Now, wow. interestingly, right, this is in the time of COVID, right? We launched this program in March. So right around the time we were launching the program, everyone started going on lockdown, right? And it's no secret, utilization across all of healthcare is going down. Right? Mm -hmm. But when you look at the um, quote unquote control group, right, the, the patients who were not wealth members, inpatient days only went down 12% due to COVID, right? Yes, emergency department and um, urgent care went down drastically in both groups. We actually had a higher relative improvement to emergency department and urgent care utilization. But but that makes perfect sense, right? Like if, if my mom had any sort of issue right now, I would try everything possible to not have her go to the emergency department if I could avoid it, right? If she twisted her ankle or really anything that was not life-threatening because I would never want her to go into the emergency room where she could get infected right now. So you could imagine this effect of, of COVID having a, a significant impact to, you know, kind of what I would call more uh, discretionary utilization. But in terms of inpatient days, right, if you're, if you have to be hospitalized, you're, you have to be hospitalized. So that was, I think, the key litmus test and, and you know, that 71% reduction to inpatient hospital days versus the, uh, the, the non-wealth group that only went down 12%, I think is a great indication that these results we showed in these small pilots and small randomly controlled trials are manifesting mm -hmm. in these huge populations, which is, you know, my, my proudest work is, is, you know, helping these patient populations improve and live happier, healthier, longer lives. Absolutely. And I mean, this is completely aligned with the purpose of, of SCORE. Um, and so I wanted to ask you, you've mentioned already diabetes and you also mentioned cardiovascular disease. So are you focused on specific diseases and wealth? We're focused on any, any patient population or patient who could improve their outcomes with better behaviors on a daily basis. So that's a very vague and general statement. But yeah, we have conditions that we have a lot of success with and a lot of history with. And there is large actuarial savings from that better behavior that can be quantified very easily, right? So the core chronic conditions or the core conditions we serve tend to be diabetes, uh, heart disease slash hypertension, congestive heart failure, asthma, COPD, and behavioral health conditions, right? And that runs the gamut from depression, anxiety to serious mental illness, schizophrenia, right? So those are the, by and large the most common disease, disease states we serve, but there are so many others that we, that we have done, you know, smaller interventions or sm smaller patient populations with. Things ranging from gestational diabetes for um, expecting mothers to sleep apnea and, and making sure patients are adhering to their CPAP therapy on, on sleep apnea. We've done, uh, we've worked with patient populations that are HIV positive. We've worked with patient populations that are, have substance use disorders or opiate addictions and trying to help them adhere to medication-assisted therapy. We're working now, one of our newest investors is Davida, and um, they're one of the large dialysis centers here in the U.S. They serve, you know, the highest risk patient population you can imagine, it's chronic kidney disease and end-stage renal disease. So these patients are, you know, very, very expensive to, to manage, right? They cost about $130,000 a year to, in terms of total cost of care. 
they have multiple chronic conditions. They have about 11 pills on average a day they have to take. They have very strict nutritional guidelines every day they have to adhere to in terms of the potassium, the sodium, the protein intake they uh, ingest. And then they still have to go to three dialysis appointments in person every week, right? So the, the care plan is so hard to adhere to. And there are such a high cost population that just any sort of improvement to any of these behaviors can produce big cost savings. So yeah, I think we we are very excited anytime we get a new a new use case and we get some success with that new use case. But I've named our core, you know, kind of uh, most common conditions we serve. How can we embed this within the underwriting processes for insurance companies? Yeah. So I would say, you know, I think life insurance innovation is even harder than health insurance innovation, which is really hard. Um, and I think there are a number of reasons why, right? The risk that life insurers are taking on is long dated in nature, right? You're taking on 25 to 40 years of mortality risk. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of books of business that are open blocks that are like, you're not going to really be able to influence or change much, right? They're underwritten 15 years ago and, and you can't really change anything about them. So I think it takes a long time for the life insurance industry to change, but I'm, I'm starting to, I'm, I'm optimistic long-term. Okay, if, if you're a life insurer here in the US, half of the population is either diabetic or pre-diabetic. There's a drastic difference in terms of the mortality expectation for someone with diabetes who controls that disease state, right? So A1C, HbA1c is a good measure of how well that disease state is controlled. If the A1C is less than seven, there's no impairment to mortality, like literally zero um, less you know, expected years of life. If the A1C is high, let's say 10 or above, you know, there could be a 15 year, 10 to 15 year reduction in life expectancy. The granularity and the difference between that well-controlled diabetic and the poorly controlled, di controlled diabetic is huge. So as a life insurer underwriter traditionally, I don't want that risk, right? Because I don't know if you're going to be that person who does those daily behaviors, right? Eats the right things, tracks the metrics and takes those pills, for example. I don't know if you're going to do that for the rest of your life or not, right? So there's a perhaps potential moral hazard or information asymmetry issue as an underwriter to underwrite that risk because I don't know you as the client or or the, the policyholder know more about your behaviors than I do, right? So what you don't want to do is you don't want to get adverse selection, price the average risk, and then only get the people who are the bad, I, I hate to say bad actors because, you know, I, I like to have empathy for patients, but the patients who don't control that disease state, let's say. As an underwriter, your, your underwriting tools today are um, points in time estimate of risk based on historical, you know, lab metrics, doctor notes, and uh, electronic you know, health practices. records. Exactly. You don't have the ability to be dynamic and price risk over time as behaviors change. Or more simply, you don't have the ability to reward good behaviors. And so what we're really interested in is creating a dynamically priced life insurance product for these different, you know, risk factors, whether it's diabetes or hypertension, maybe even, you know, other things like smoking or whatever is a, an adverse risk factor to, you know, your underwriting process, could you create a program where by selecting for those patient populations or those, those client populations that are already controlling that, that risk uh, and more granularly underwriting it to reward them for that good behavior, or even more, more exciting would be to take someone who's not currently doing the behavior, but to get them to, to change their behaviors and change, therefore change their risk and rewarding them for that. That's what gets me super excited about where um, the life insurance industry can go over the time. And if you aren't thinking about these risk factors, really the, the total addressable size of the market is going to shrink drastically over the next 20 years for you. We have an epidemic of these risk factors, diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease. So if you're not willing to underwrite these risk factors, you're going to be left with only a sliver of the adult population here in the U.S. that is very small. And um, you're going to see your, your sales, your new policy sales going down drastically every year. 
So what can the general life and, and health ecosystem do to support wealth, for example, or initiatives that are really driven on, on improving the life standards on the medical care that ultimately policyholders or individuals uh, are getting? I'll speak more generally for digital innovation broadly, not just wealth. I think we're at a very exciting time when we are seeing the promise of digital health come to fruition. And what I mean by that is you have huge companies like Teladoc and Livongo, you know, growing extremely quickly and being these large publicly traded companies that just merged, right? Because this is a unique moment in time where for 10 years, people have been very excited about the prospect of digital health, but now it's becoming necessary, right? And a lot of, I guess, one of the silver linings of, of the pandemic has been, how do we rethink the healthcare delivery system when you can't see people in person? And what are the digital tools that the, the healthcare industry can adopt? So I think I'm very excited about our long-term future because I think a lot of the, the large, let's say the system, right, the incumbents, the, the, the payers, the providers, the health, the life insurers, they're very, for the first time, they're having to, to rethink their relationship with their customers or patients or clients. They're having to think about how do we serve these people with digital tools and digital interactions. And I think a lot of what is going on today is the infrastructure is being built, right? The telemedicine and the remote patient monitoring infrastructure is being built. But in the same way, you can have the best in class drugs and no one takes them. They don't they don't improve any uh, outcomes. You can have the best in class telemedicine doctors and tools and remote patient monitoring devices out there distributed. And if people don't show up to those appointments, do what they're supposed to do in between those appointments and use those devices every day as, as they're intended, it's not going to be good for the system. Right. So I think more adoption of these digital tools is the best thing possible for wealth, because now we can be this adjunct to this infrastructure to make sure the patients follow through with, with what they know they should, but often don't do. I've had a great time chatting. I, I would love um, if any listeners want to learn more, please reach out to us. It is when I think about our work, right? We are, our whole reason of being is to try to help the high risk populations adopt the behaviors that improve their outcomes, improve their morbidity and improve their mortality. Right now we're doing that as a service to health and life insurers and, and risk-bearing providers. But in the long term, we want to be a risk partner, right? We want to actually be able to co-insure or underwrite or capitate or reinsure risk from our partners to make their jobs easier. And we're thinking about doing this across the board uh, in life insurance. Can you go after new markets and uh, underwrite people with existing risk factors, but price those risk factors based on the behaviors they do to control them, right? We worked with ATSA to create a, a whole new life insurance policy for diabetics that rewarded them financially or shared savings back to, to, to the policyholder for taking the steps to control that diabetes, right? We think about our health use cases where we're going to the health insurers and risk-bearing providers, and we're drastically improving you know, hospitalizations in patient days, which saves a ton of cost to the system. What if we could go with a risk product wrapped around our service where we're taking risk off of their balance sheet or reinsuring risk or pools of, of risk? That's what gets me really excited. So. Uh, I am a huge geek when it comes to, uh, you know, kind of risk and underwriting and insurance. And I would love to talk about long term how, how you know, we could see this, uh, this world where today the reinsurers are just trying to price that risk uh, at parity to, to the, the primary underwriters and, you know, take it off their hands by pricing it efficiently. Uh, you know, we think we have a differentiated tool that not only allows us to have more information on a daily basis about the behaviors that improve morbidity and mortality for any given high-risk population, but we actually have the differentiated ability to improve those behaviors and therefore improve the risk. So I'm really excited about a future where we have the ability to be more of a risk partner and would love to talk um, to, to listeners who, who might have um, business lines that would be interested in that. So do you think the insurance companies are generally open right now? 
in the current situation with, let's say, COVID and, and the limitation of, for example, for life insurance, even assessing properly uh, individuals to offer policies, do you think they would be open to move forward with processes like this? Um, frankly, no. I think a lot of the underwriters are just figuring out how do they survive in this new normal, mm -hmm. uh, especially when you can't necessarily sell policies in person or um, gather information in person. Um, I think that uh, let's let's say that a lot of them are are trying to figure out how to continue to exist in this new normal. And when and whenever there's uncertainty, it creates near term lack of lack of innovation, right? People don't want to do anything new when there's uncertainty. Long term, however, I'm actually, I think that maybe this is the moment in time where we can start to change the industry. Again, we have to start to think about digital uh, journey, client journeys for, for people, clients asking for life insurance because you can't meet them in person. The traditional sales model doesn't work today. The traditional doctor visits doesn't work today because people aren't going to doctor's offices and so you maybe don't have up-to-date physician notes uh, on these on these individuals. So what if you could create a completely digitally native user experience from the first contact with that potential client through underwriting, through ongoing engagement with them for the next 30 years of their life and price them in a way that's more efficient, more granular, and more accurate, the old way of doing things. Um, I think that's a huge change, right? And I think that's the problem is that uh, an industry as as old and uh, complicated as the life insurance industry, it takes a long time to make those big changes. But maybe this is this is the catalyst where we can start to change these things. And it's no fault of the underwriters, right? I'm not saying that they don't want to improve or they don't want to innovate. They do. It's just the the nature of the industry and the nature of their business is is it makes it very hard. Matt, are you currently uh, sharing the information that you're collecting from patients uh, for any underwriting activities? So we we try to stay away from sharing your information, especially, you know, we are uh, very, I guess, uh, focused on patient health information security, and we're HIPAA compliant in everything we do. So we don't want to share your personal information as one of our patients with some third party in order for them to sell something to you. Now, does that mean that we we couldn't make an offer if we, if we know you're already a diabetic and we know you're already well controlled and you might be a good you might be a good target for a life insurance. Like, let's say we're working with your health insurer and we, we already served you and we already see that you're, you're controlling this disease state. Yeah, maybe that is an interesting thing that we could offer you and say, hey, did you know that you could get a life insurance policy from AXA or one of the underwriters that, let's say we create this new dynamic and fresh product with that is going to, to your point, you know, any other underwriter right now would say either you have a huge premium or you're, you're not approved for life insurance because you're diabetic, but we know you're a well-controlled diabetic. So we're going to make you an offer that's way more attractive than anyone else can. How can we empower underwriters to get more data points, to understand people in a more more humane way as well, and, and to understand that disease does not necessarily have to be a blocker or for coverage for life insurance, which is, like you said, an extremely complicated process. So that was more the direction of my question. Yeah, so we, we did a, a pilot with AXA this year, and um, you know, very small uh, population we served um, to help them underwrite the, these individuals with a, an existing diabetes diagnosis, but massively successful, right? So it, it was, you know, it was not marketed broadly. Uh, you know, I think, you know, for example, like John Hancock with their, their vitality program here in the U.S. has marketed that program broadly. We, we didn't do that with AXA, but we did, we had 
huge success rates in the those uh, clients we made the offer to uh, to help them get under and at a better rate. Uh, basically, about a hundred percent of the people who took the offer and said, "Yeah, I'd like to go through that process," ended up hitting the goal and getting you know a lot of savings back from the program. So, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. All right, sounds great. Thank you so much for your time and your interest. Of course, thank you. Have a wonderful day. Stay healthy and talk to you soon. You too. Bye.